Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 to 33, which can be found on your pew Bibles on page 1097. Acts 17, 16 to 33. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did, did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by God, man's uh, design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. 
a few men became followers of Paul and believed. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, for this continuing story of your church that we read in Acts and the continuing story of your church here in this place. We pray that you would give us ears to hear how these things are connected. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to receive and understand your word for us this morning. We pray in all these things that you would be our light, that you would be our understanding, that you would move us and motivate us to be the church you've called us to be, following Jesus, loving the city, and serving the world. Amen. If you're new here, or you've just been around a couple Sundays, you might not know, but we've been lingering in this book of Acts for a little while looking at this story of the early church, the earliest followers of Jesus, and recognizing the ways that their story is actually still our story, how their stories may challenge us and encourage us and affirm that the church today is still in so many ways the church that has always been. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been using this series in the book of Acts to also re-explore our vision for our church, our vision that we are a church that is following Jesus, loving the city, and serving the world. We've seen how following Jesus means growing in community as people who seek Jesus in worship and in spiritual practices and growing closer together, though in no worldly circle would all the people gathered in this room have any reason to come together. We find that in the church they do, and together they learn to become obedient to Christ's call on our lives. And last week, we've talked about how we love the city because in the city we find people who have emotional and spiritual and physical needs that the gospel of Jesus Christ responds to and addresses. In just the previous chapter of Acts, we read about how a businesswoman and a slave girl and a Roman jailer, three very different people in the ancient world, were all transformed and touched by this gospel of Jesus Christ and how that transformation didn't just affect them, but it had ripple effects through their households and families. We've come to realize that the rich diversity of life that we see in the city receives the full goodness of the gospel and reaches far beyond what we could imagine. And so this week, we'll look at serving the world. And to help us to unpack that part of our vision together, we'll use this story of the Apostle Paul in Athens. As we prepare to unpack that story together, I think it might be helpful for us to remember who Paul is. Paul is a Pharisee, a devoutly religious Jew, who was so passionate about his faith that he felt a Jewish sect that believed Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, they deserved to be persecuted. They deserved to have their followers stoned and scattered. Paul didn't just believe that he was right about the way things were in the world. I think we all believe we're right about the way things are in the world. But Paul believed that anyone who disagreed with him, who deviated from those core beliefs, deserved to be punished if they wouldn't see reason, if they wouldn't see things his way. 
It should come as no surprise to us then that when Paul arrives in Athens, he is greatly distressed that this city is full of idols. These people aren't just a little off like that Jewish sect was. These people have gone off the deep end of idol worship. There's an idol to everything. There's an idol to marriage and fertility. There's an idol to the moon and the hunt. There's an idol for wine, an idol for the sea, and more than one idol for war. And this is just to name a few. Every object, every occupation or activity, all had gods that ruled over them. Athens is as far away from Jerusalem as one could get in terms of religion. In Jerusalem, there is only one god, and any other belief is punishable. In Athens, there are innumerable gods, and anybody who doesn't realize that is a babbler is a fool, or, at best, is just an advocate for one more God to add to their pantheon. So with what we know about Paul's former ways, this kind of blatant idolatry should have been intolerable. Perhaps we would expect to read about him smashing idols as Muhammad would in Mecca. Or perhaps we'd expect to see him speaking harshly to these other followers of his religion who somehow allowed themselves to live in a place with such utter religious chaos. But Paul, we read, is not the old Paul. Paul has been transformed by his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, and his approach to this offensive and most concerning thing has also been transformed. It would be easy for Paul to lash out at Athens, to lash out at religiosity run amok. It would be easy for him to come to this foreign place so far from everything he was familiar with and comfortable around and to just wash his hands of it, to say that Iconium and Macedonia and Philippi, they could be helped. But Athens is beyond hope. Too far from Jerusalem, not only in geography, but in morals and in awareness of God's movement in the world, to say that Athens is too far gone to be concerned about and to direct his energies somewhere where they might be more fruitful. We read this morning how only a few men became followers at that time. And I think this kind of reaction is natural for many people that first reaction to say no to the unfamiliar, to judge harshly the wrong that we can so easily see in other cultures, in other customs, in other places. This negative first reaction is easy for us. I think it's easy for me, at least. Criticism has become our very nature. We look at the customs and values of of another culture and not understanding them we dismiss them as ignorant. Perhaps we dismiss them as barbaric, or we just say they're evil. And I'm afraid that we don't even have to go very far for us to render these kinds of verdicts. Even in the church, looking at the culture just outside our doors, that secular culture of Canada and the Western world, Our first words are often words of harsh criticism about materialism and about the love of money and about the effects of social media on our relationships. And these conversations are important conversations to be had, don't get me wrong. 
But perhaps they are not the first words of invitation and welcome that Jesus means for his church to offer to a world that so needs his presence, to a world that is longing for fulfillment that only he can provide. Instead of beginning with criticism, what do we see the Apostle Paul doing in Athens? Paul goes to the Areopagus and says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. That's just a statement. And in fact, it's a statement that the Athenians are likely to receive as a compliment. This guy gets us. Yes, we are. Thank you very much. But Paul opens this whole story by affirming a deep desire within the Athenian culture to worship even to worship that which they do not yet know. Far from destroying idols, we see that Paul has studied them, has read their inscriptions, and he's found an idol to one of an unknown God. Paul has studied the intricacies of a foreign people, an unfamiliar religion, and he's found some common ground from which he can point them toward the thing that he knows they need point them toward Jesus in whom we live and move and have our being. But more than just familiar with their statues, Paul has become familiar with their poetry, with their art, with their philosophy. He quotes their poets to affirm their understanding of the divine and redirect them to that most high God and Jesus Christ, his only Son, That line, in him we live and move and have our being, is from the poet and philosopher Epimenides, who wrote in his Critica, quote, They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one, Cretans always liars, evil bellies, idle beasts, but you are not dead. You live and abide forever, for in you we live and move and have our being. It's wonderful. It's beautiful, and it's very explicitly pagan. This is a poem to Zeus. This is an affirmation that Zeus is not in a tomb like the Cretans were saying for some reason, but that Zeus is immortal because life, all life, finds its being through Zeus. How easy would it have been for Paul or you or I to read this poem and say, you fools, you worship a false god in Zeus and you are insulting the only true God. I think that's a line that the church often says of secular art of all sorts. You fools. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're doing. But instead of saying that, Paul takes this poem and says, yes, this thing you believe is true of the God that I worship as well. And let me tell you more about that God, how he is Lord of all things, not only a certain domain, And he requires the worship that is due to him, not in fashioning idols or building beautiful temples, but in seeking justice for the world. You see, Athens was a city of ideas. Athena, their idol, was the goddess of wisdom, and there was much ideas in this city. The city of ideas didn't need another idol, didn't need another new idea. It needed a refinement of its ideas. It needed a direction to put all its devotion and a name to give that God that so many Athenians had encountered and caught glimmers of, but wrongly called those glimmers Zeus 
and Athena and unknowable. This, my friends, is what serving the world looks like. Serving the world is not just reacting to those things that we perceive are wrong in various places. If our voices are constantly negative, consistently critical, exclusively irate at the offenses we bear, allegedly on God's behalf, though God does not need us to defend Him, people are going to tune us out. People have been tuning out the church in the West for a long time now because we're not serving them, because we're not helping them. Instead, we're hurting them. We are placing ourselves high above them in judgment and not lowering ourselves to see their needs, to meet their needs, needs that may be displayed in these very things that we would criticize rightly. But we're not endeavoring to meet those needs in any real way. We're not seeking their best. Serving Athens for Paul meant working with Athenian ideas to show them the love of the God that had caused their city to prosper. Serving Athenians despite all the objectionable belief and actions that were present in Athens was the thing that Paul was now able to do because of Jesus Christ and God's Holy Spirit that he could have never dreamed of doing before to speak softly and respectfully and incorporate even pagan poetry into his faith, now even making it Christian scripture, Christian scripture which I suspect many of us in this room have memorized at one point or another for the sake of these others, these Athenians who needed to hear and be welcomed in. An Athenian may be the exact opposite of a Pharisee, but in God's kingdom, even Athenians find their home. When we talk about serving the world at our church, it's always in two contexts. The first context is with this background of the incredible history our church has of overseas missions, of serving people in unreached places, of witnessing to the gospel where nobody's ever heard of this gospel before. That's very much what Paul is doing in Athens. But the second way that we talk about serving the world in our church is in the context of the world that we encounter in our own city streets. In his parenthetical note in verse 21, the author Luke remarks, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That sounds a lot like our city of Toronto. Athenians doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas sounds a lot like my conversations with friends about politics. Athens sounds like the 24-7 news cycle, the constant bombardment of information that the so-called information age has brought not only to our culture but to the entire world. The reality was that the greatest ideas made it to Athens. And from Athens, ideas went to all of the Mediterranean world. So too, we find that ideas come to Toronto. They come to Toronto through visiting scholars, doing work or studying at the university, through business people investing in our city and figuring out new ways of doing things in our midst. And then they leave Toronto. They leave Toronto to communities all over the world where people find work and settle down or just go back home. As far as it could be in the first century, Athens was a global city. And the things that happened there reverberated far beyond Athens. So too, we at Knox recognize that you don't need to go overseas to serve the world. 
In Toronto, in many ways, the world has come to us. We can observe the interactions between richly diverse cultures just walking down our streets. We can learn the needs of people whose stories are so vastly different from our own without traveling very far at all. And if, like Paul, we're careful with them, if we study them intently and receive these stories as the gift that they are, we may find that we have incredible insight from which we can affirm the deepest longings of these people, becoming able to recognize the needs that they know they have and are striving to find fulfilled, and inviting them into this community of the church where we love and serve each other and find our fullness in Christ, who is our head. The reality remains that it will be easy for us to say no, to see things that make us feel uncomfortable, that upset our religious sensibilities, and just to opt out, to wash our hands of this world, to find ourselves in this new Athens and say this new place where we find ourselves is without hope, too far gone for our help, too lost in its misguided endeavors to ever find its way out. And that's an easy judgment to pass. I think it's an easy judgment to pass anywhere in the world, wherever you're coming from and wherever you're going. But the challenge I want to leave with you today is to dare to look deeper. Look deeper than your initial no. Look deeper than your outrage and your great distress. Look instead to understand the people who you're meeting, people who were made in God's image, people whose longings in some way relate to the life God longs for them to have, people who point to a truth of who God is and who we are. Look for the things that you can say yes to and work with them from there. This way of doing things is unfamiliar to us. We're used to the stories of the church's involvement in cultural genocide in residential schools in Canada, the sanctioning of apartheid in South Africa, the destruction of the church through many crusades. Even though those things are part of our history, we have to realize that this thing that Paul does is part of a great tradition of the church. Even as Paul in Athens takes a pagan poet and says, this is good and this is right, takes what could easily be rejected and redeems it, using it to point to Jesus Christ and reveal that kingdom which is already being built in our midst, so too the church at its very best has done these same things, has taken up this pattern for ourselves. Instead of quashing every pagan festivity in Europe, the church affirms that there is in fact something really good about celebrating light coming back into the world at the winter solstice, that there is a center of truth in that that makes humans celebrate that light is entering the world, and so we paired it with when light entered history with Christmas and Advent and the story of Jesus. That urge to celebrate light is an affirmation of God's goodness in our world. There's stories of when Christianity made it to China, the missionaries wrote Jesus Sutras, taking the gospel and placing it in the context of religious writings that the people would be familiar with, positioning Jesus as one of the teachers that they knew, a wisdom teacher, taking a cultural reality and making it resonate with the gospel of Jesus. And so many other traditions and customs in the church have been adopted from cultures that the church has sought to serve, affirming many good longings of different people 
different hearts and retelling their stories in ways that points to the reality of God working in their midst. In just a couple minutes, we're going to hear John Lennon's song, Imagine, for the Operatory. It's not a song you expect to hear sung in the church, but this song is archetypal of the shift that we've seen in our culture over the last hundred years. And it would be easy for any of us to object to this song, to object to this song being sung in this place, object to imagining that there's no heaven or hell or religion at all. We could shut down at that point and say, this is wrong. No, this is not okay. But the challenge I'm offering to you is to consider what the yeses are that we can affirm. Because I think that this song and its vision for world peace and everybody having what they need is in fact a vision of the kingdom of God. John would never say that. Epimenides would never say this was about the Jewish God. But we can say that for them. Because one of the things Acts 17 is trying to teach us is that it doesn't need to be fully formed or have it all together for us to affirm it, to say that it's worth affirming. When when Epimenides wrote this poem, he was wrong. Zeus was as dead as the stone of his statues. But Epimenides' poetry was right in pointing to an immortal God that no tomb could hold. It was worth Paul's attention to know this poem, to affirm something true about it, to say yes to it for the sake of Athens. So I encourage you to consider this song. Consider the ways that it points to the work that God is doing in our world, points to the better way that God desires for all people and for us to join him in, in serving all people everywhere, all to his glory, and for the good of the world that he loves. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for the transformation you worked in his life, that he could move from being a religious fundamentalist, saying no to everything that was different and strange and possibly right that he just didn't know was right, and become the man that we read about today who entered Athens, a place with so much wrong, so much to say no to, and could find the yes, could find the place where he could work with your gospel, where he could draw people into relationship with you through a longing they've had for a long time. We pray the same for us, that we would be people with eyes and ears to hear and see the longings of our culture wherever we find ourselves to find the ways that you're working, the yeses we can affirm, even through people who would never point to you. How we can use art and beauty in the world that points to you and affirm it. So we can say strong yeses and strong noes. So we have a good sense of your love for all creation. We pray even as we hear this song that you would give us those eyes and ears, that this would be a rehearsal of what you invite us into all the rest of the week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.